What would it take to arouse your life, to experience more connection, more pleasure, more realness, in and outside of the bedroom? I'm August McLaughlin, and this is Girl Boner Radio. Imagine you're going about your life as usual when you're diagnosed with a serious disease you had feared for some time. How do you think you'd respond? In addition to seeking any treatment you might need, would you schedule that spicy photo shoot you had kept in a hopefully someday file? Today's guest did just that, and even she was surprised by the outcome. Before we dive in, a huge sponsor shout out to The Pleasure Chest, my favorite place to shop for toys, lube, massage candles, and more. Check out their Pride Month specials at any store in New York, Los Angeles, or Chicago, or head to thepleasurechest.com to start shopping. Now I'm so pleased to share my chat with Beverly Deal, who describes herself as sex positive, pro-choice, life positive, polyamorous, and a breast cancer surthriver with a tiara. Her memoir, Sex, Drugs, Rock and Roll, and a Tiara, was published in 2017. She's also been published in several anthologies and lives in Los Angeles with her two wild and crazy teenage kitties, Motivation and Creativity. Beverly, thank you so much for joining me today. And thank you for inviting me. It's so delightful to meet you in person at last. Same. So I really appreciated that. When we met in person a few minutes ago, the way that you said... Would you like to share a hug? I, I do try to ask people, you know, before, unless I know them really well and, and whatnot. But the way you said share a hug, that was really endearing to me. Well, I think it's I think it's fun. It's one of the things I learned from Jean Franzblau of Cuddle Sanctuary, who was a guest on your program not so long ago. And she suggests that you can ask, may I give you a hug? Would you like to give me a hug or would you like to share a hug? And I just kind of felt like the vibe between us was let's share. Completely. Yeah. <laughs> I, I was so excited that we were going to finally meet in person because I've known of you and your voice online and we have a lot of mutual friends and colleagues and I'm very excited to, to read your memoir. And I quoted you in Girl Boner Journal. So I love interviewing writers because the way they describe things, I loved what you said about how intense that was. We'll get to that. But I'd love to start with a bit about your early journey when you think about what you learned about sex and sexuality growing up, what memory stands out to you? Well, I am both blessed because my parents were very sex positive. However, some incidents intervened. But I remember being allowed to look through my dad's Playboys when I was seven or eight years old and uh, play the game of where's the bunny on the cover. Apparently, there's there was a way that each woman was posed and her arms and her legs or something that formed a rabbit. So I would try to find the bunny on the cover. And I would look inside and I would look at the pictures of naked women and I just thought, oh, this is interesting. This is beautiful. I did end up getting a talk into by my mom because I, while I was welcome to look at the magazines, it was not okay to share them with the 11-year-old from next door who was sometimes my babysitter. Apparently, her mom was not pleased. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, that's really funny. Did you get a talking to? Yes, that it was this was something that we could do in our family, but not everybody did so. So I early on got a 
books on sexuality and sensuality. I was exposed to erotic literature. My dad told me that pretty much everybody in our family enjoyed sex, and I expect you will too. Um, but there were some gaps that you, you don't know what you don't know. So, for instance, the first time I had penetrative intercourse and uh, a man ejaculated me, I was 12. And I hadn't yet started to menstruate. And I didn't know that sperm came with an expiration date. <laughs> I thought that once the sperm was inside you, it was just like swimming around like jaws waiting <laughs> for an egg to be released. Aww. And at any point, I could be pregnant based on having... For the rest of your life? For the rest of my life because this sperm was inside me. So were you wandering around wondering every day until you knew otherwise? For years. For years. Aww. I was like, you know, until I get my period... I don't know. I could be pregnant right now. <laughs> wow. Yeah, that's an important thing to mention, isn't it, when we're talking to kids about what actually happens? Yeah. You the, know, the sperm <laughs> will be dead after two to three days, Max. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That's very, very funny. Uh, so your memoir talks about your experience going through breast cancer and becoming a sort of thriver. I really appreciate that term. Tell us about the experience being diagnosed. I know you have a family history of the disease. Yeah. So my mother had breast cancer, and she can, she was diagnosed when she was about uh, 45, 46, before she had menopause. So I always, there, there's a thing that happens, Hope Edelman talks about this in Motherless Daughters, that you always think that you are going to meet your parents' fate at that age or before. So there were a lot of times in my life where I was like, no, no, like when my son was the age that I was or whatever. So I always knew that breast cancer was going to come and get me, right? I, I had that hanging over my head. So it was actually a relief to get the diagnosis. It was like, oh, it was the moment in, in high noon where Jimmy Stewart walks in the street and it's like, okay, you and me, cancer. <laughs> One of us is leaving here. <laughs> finally, finally you can face this and then move past the anxiety that had probably been building up for years. Yeah, yeah. So it's like, okay, here it is. And what there were so many blessings that happened to me along the journey. Um, for one thing, my sister had this really bizarre gallbladder cancer a few years before. So, okay, you know, gallbladder cancer is a really bad cancer, survival rate's really low. But because my sister had this cancer and because my mother had this cancer, um, one of the steps along my journey is I got a full genetic workup. Now, normally they only screen for BRCA1 and BRCA2, but there's another 23, 24 pairs of chromosomes that can indicate a predisposition to have cancer again. And so that you can be screened for it voluntarily. It's about three or $4,000. But because of the family history, my insurance company covered it. Score. Score. That's amazing. <laughs> and how did the results turn out? And I'm negative for everything. I have no genetic predisposition. The cancer that I had was nothing connected to any genetic factors. It and was when was this test? Was this prior to your diagnosis? And It was following the diagnosis. So, so okay, so here's the path of the diagnosis. So I go in for my routine mammogram, and 
Um, they go, okay, you're fine. You can leave. I'm in the parking structure next door getting ready to go, thinking about, okay, I'm going to go home and I'm going to celebrate. Yay. And then they call and they go, mm, the radiologist would like you to come in for more screening. I was like, really? <laughs> they were like, well, if you don't want to do it today, you can do it on another day. And I was like, no, I do not want to drive all the way home and come back on another day. I'll come and in and wait and worry and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Let's just, let's just do it. And so then she, you know, they did some screening. They found a teeny, teeny spot and she was showing me. And um, now I have big breasts. Okay. But they were blown up on a screen the size of like a bread box. <laughs> it was like, so that's been interesting. It was huge. Like a bulletin board of your And then that's boobs. like this tiny, with my breast blown up that big, it was like the size of a pencil eraser maybe that she's pointing to. And she's like, I really think you should have a biopsy. So, okay. So I had previously had a couple biopsies for spots that had come up on my mammograms and they'd come out negative. Um, we just... Women that have what they call fibrocystic breasts, we have spongy tissue, we have cysts, we have, you know, I don't know, somebody's lunch in there, <laughs> whatever, you know. So 80 to 85 percent of biopsies come out negative. So were you anxious at all or did you think, oh, just another blip? Well, that's where my tiara came in. <laughs> so I had a tiara. I had gotten it for dating purposes and what have you before. So I decided I needed a little extra help to get through this. So I put on my tiara when I went back for the biopsy. And so I it, it was a good choice because everybody smiled at me. You're wearing a tiara. People are smiling at you. And you're smiling back at them. And you create this good feedback loop. And so I had my biopsy. And the results came back. And it came back positive. And so it was like, okay, here it is, the high noon moment. Now we're, you know, now we're going to see um, what's going on. So once you get the diagnosis, you are then uh, making contacts with a surgeon to discuss your options with a surgeon. Um, so I was immediately going to see a surgeon and scheduling for a body MRI to see if there was any more suspicious spots anywhere else in my boobs um, and discussing what my options were. Now, part of it is, too, is the pathology. Now, my pathology, I had a tiny estrogen receptor positive tumor. It's the most common kind. It's the easiest to treat. And the cure rate is 98, 99%. If caught early or yeah. in general, yeah. Yeah. So, so you it's felt like, pretty. It, it, it's like, okay, this is a nuisance, but I would have to work hard to die from this kind of cancer. Sure. It it's would, kind of a best case scenario if you have to have breast cancer. If you have to have breast cancer, this is what you want. There there are other kinds that are, that are less common and that are harder to treat. Um, and, you know, unfortunately, women do still die from it. Do not let a suspicious lump go just because you think you're too young or you too, you think whatever you think, get it checked out. And do you think that that, you mentioned how small the the tumor, the little mm -hmm. dot was, uh, even blown up. Do you think that your 
doctor, your care team, were they especially proactive because of your history? Is that something that some doctors would write off or is that is that kind of standard? Like if they see a dot, they're going to look into it. I think it's a little of both. I think that in recent years, imaging has gotten so much better that they can see these little things. Now, um, what I had, they call DCIS, ductal carcinoma in situ, which means basically that um, so inside your breast, you have lobes that create milk. You have ducts that lead the milk to the nipple. And of course, you have the nipple and you have lots of fatty deposits and other tissue in there. So ductal carcinoma in situ means that you have a tiny little tumor that starts inside one of the the ducts. And so it doesn't usually start to show until it's grown to the point where it's splitting the duct and it's and it's starting to spread into the outside tissue. While it's contained in the duct, it's contained. It doesn't show up. What shows up on a mammogram is irritation. Oh. To something that's there. So okay. if there's no irritation, it's not there. So looking at the labs, um, it appears, and, and what they took out, and they, when they took it out, it had uh, had what they call cl- uh, clear margins so that they there was no excess around there. It was 0.7 centimeters long and 0.4 centimeters wide. Wow. So it was, it was tiny. It was inside the duct. But so based on the pathology reports for its growth rate, which is another thing that they look at to stage it, um, it had probably been growing to that size for about 10 years. You're kidding. Wow. So it's really slow going and microscopic for some time. Like it has to actually cause damage, like you said, to to be found. Yes. Interesting. Wow. So did you, it sounded like things moved pretty quickly after that. They moved tremendously fast. Yeah. So what was your treatment protocol like? So, okay. So the, so the first thing is, was the breast MRI and, um, scheduling and and provided that that didn't show any bogeys and provided that my genetic testing didn't show any bogeys, then we were going to do a lumpectomy, which is they go in surgically and they just remove the cancerous spot. Now, if my labs had been different, if my any of my tests had been different, I might have been looking at removing a breast or both breasts and then making the decision whether I wanted to have them reconstructed or to go flat which is what some women are choosing to do for better results. So I had didn't know at the point where I got my diagnosis what was going to happen. So one of the first things that I did was I decided to schedule some boudoir photography. Okay, so I love this so much. And you have gorgeous photos in your book throughout. Now, this was on your bucket list, right, already? Mm-hmm. But it was the actual diagnosis that prompted. Yes, Yes, because, you know, you know, like a lot of women, I was going to do this eventually. I was going to do this when I was thinner or more toned or this or that. And then it was like, you know, I don't know if I'm going to even be keeping my breasts. Maybe I should show them some love and, and memorialize them before mm. one or both of them goes away. That's beautiful. <laughs> so even before things moved forward, you... You found a photographer. Mm-hmm. How did you feel leading up to the shoot, given that you were prior to that thinking you'd wait until blank happens? Were you anxious? Were you excited? I was a little of both. I felt like I had, I had seen and admired his work 
in various blogs and stuff. And I felt like, okay, this is this is going to be a good experience. Um, I negotiated with him to do before and after sessions um, for like a flat rate to be paid in advance. And I made arrangements to have my hair done and to have my makeup done so I could, you know, do his stylist very 40s glam. I've seen it. So it's Nick Holmes. Nick Holmes. I'm a fan of his. I think I found him through other people who had had these these photo shoots, but I follow his Instagram and it's Mm -hmm. it's really stunning. And I feel there's a real there's a realness and an elegance and it's. It's really, really beautiful. I just from the photos, it feels to me that people have really positive experiences because I worked in fashion for so long, and I, I feel like you can tell when when someone's yeah. not comfortable. You looked really comfortable. I was, I, I was comfortable. Of course, there was some drinking involved. Yeah, <laughs> by both of us, that that, that helped. You know, um, I just felt like I had nothing else, nothing to lose. And he is, you know, super professional, super charming, super hot. <laughs> you know, it was it was it was a lot of fun. Um, there was at one point um, because you know he had laid out this and laid out that, and he'd put he had a like a cowskin rug and and that i was standing on top of paper on top of it and he had me leaning over well again i have big boobs so <laughs> i kind of went over ass over tea kettle bam i went Ow. down oh my gosh he was horrified do you have photos i was of all embarrassed of i do not have photos because <laughs> he put probably his camera too down worried and, and yes. i was like are like you a okay good person. i was like I'm fine. I'm just clumsy. I'm just, what can I say? Oh, so it all worked out. It worked out. It worked out fine. But yeah. yes. And what did you think when you saw the photos? Did you see any in, right away or did you did you wait until he gives them to you later? He sent them to me within a couple of days. And I, you know, I felt going in there, I'd felt like hopefully I'll get two or three pictures that I like. I'd always hated pictures of myself. I'd always rushed through taking pictures of myself. I'd always, you know, made faces, hit out at the back of the crowd, you know, done other things to escape being in pictures because I never liked how I looked in pictures. Never, never. It was like, it was, it was awful. I don't take a good picture. And I was like, you know, even if I only like two or three of these, it's worth it, it. Was a, it was a good experience. So yeah. I'm glad yeah. we did this. So... I got the pictures and he sent me, I think he sent me about one or 200 of his favorites first. One or 200? One or 200. It, it, he ended up taking about 700 per session. Wow. And so I learned that the key to having pictures that you like is taking a whole bunch of them. Always, yes. Which was a new learning experience. And I looked at those pictures and I just cried. I saw a beautiful woman, and I couldn't believe it was me. Mm. And it started me looking and feeling so differently about myself. I stopped avoiding being in pictures, and I started taking selfies. And I started, you know, and I shared some of my pictures with my boyfriends, and I just, I felt Amazing. No matter what happened, it was like this was worth it. 
What a gorgeous thing to experience and also to experience at that specific point in your life as you're going through this journey with cancer, cancer recovery, and all of that. How did it it influence your feelings around treatment, if at all? Well, the treatment was already set based on my health conditions um, shortly after the photo shoot. So it was like, well, you know, yay, I get to keep my breasts, Um, at least right now. At some point in the future, that may change. But right now, they're still hanging out with me. Um, it, It made me feel, I don't know, it made me feel lovely. It made me feel desirable. It's something that when I'm down, I can pull out those pictures and I can look at them and I'm going, yeah, you have it going on. That's so awesome. I feel like everyone should experience that, don't you? Yes. And, and you know, I am, you know, one of the things that I'm dealing with in my life is I have gained a lot of weight in recent years. I've had certain physical conditions that have inhibited my ability to exercise. And so, you know, like a lot of women and men, you know, the the whole hating on yourself because you're not the size you think you should be, you know, um, we're transitioning through this life. You know, we're yeah. going to we're going to have peaks and valleys and we're going to have times that we really love the way we look and we're going to have times that we don't really love the way we look. And, and so having these pictures taken at a time when I would not have said I was attractive and looking at them and saying, damn. She's sexy. Yeah. I that is so awesome. I, I thank you so much for sharing that. I, I think it's really an empowering thing to do um, for ourselves, whether we share them with the world, whether it's purely for our, for our own selves. I think that's really, really impactful. So you from there, I know that this whole experience kind of ended up bolstering in some ways your sex positivity in some ways. It did. How did that sort of pan out? How did it go from going through, you had the the boudoir shoot, you had cancer treatment, and then you have just really been very involved in sex positivity in so many different ways, personally and also part of an official organization. Mm -hmm. Tell us about that sort of progression. Well, at the time that I got the diagnosis, I had been a member of Sex Positive World and the Sex Positive Los Angeles chapter for about five or six months. And I was just starting to get into some of the nice, interesting, juicy things and workshops and this and that. And then it kind of had to go on the back burner because I was having treatment. Um, although there were there were still things that I that I was able to do that I connected with like I took a rope bondage class that was a six week class or a four week class I don't I I think four anyway it doesn't matter I I took several weeks of rope bondage and learned that I like to tie people up and I like being tied up and that was something I didn't know about myself and that was interesting and I was able to explore different things and um, get support from my uh, partners, get support from my community. I was able to go to Cuddles, both with Cuddle Sanctuary and with SPLA, and get physical touch needs met. Um, it was it was a very positive experience. And at this point, were you already identifying as polyamorous? 
Yes. So tell us when you came to that realization about yourself or, or decision, depending on how you look at it. Well, I think that I've always been polyamorous. I didn't know there was a name to it. My very first kiss when I was five or six years old was in the backyard with two brothers. All and, three of you at once? Yes. And we were playing and we were playing wedding and they were taking turns being the minister. You had a poly wedding when you were a kid and didn't even know that's what you're doing. That's <laughs> I did really adorable. One of them was like, you may now kiss the bride and, and the one brother would kiss me and then they would switch and the other would go, you may now kiss the bride. <laughs> <laughs> and so I think I was always polyamorous, but I didn't know that there was a name to it. I thought I was just a happy slut, you know, so why not? Um I did get into a monogamous relationship for a number of years that turned out to be very toxic and very hurtful to me. And I totally swore off from dating for several years. And I had just started getting back into dating and joined SPLA and, you know, all of this that had come down. I, I had at the time three, four partners um, and was learning about being ethically polyamorous and learning to negotiate things in this relationship. And then I got this diagnosis. And I was scared because, man, you know, and it, and it came on the heels of me going in for testing because SPLA encourages getting regular STI testing. And I had never been tested with a full panel. So I went in for a full panel of uh, HSV, which is herpes, HSV 1 and 2, uh, hepatitis A, B, and C, uh, syphilis, chlamydia, gonorrhea, uh, HIV. So I'd gotten tested for about 10 things. And everything came out negative except I was HSV positive. And I was positive for HSV 1 and HSV 2. And that kind of freaked me out because there's a lot of stigma about it, and I had no idea because I had no symptoms. I mean, I knew I got cold sores on my mouth periodically, but I, like, I've got both. I've got the good one and the bad one. Now I know there's not really a good one or a bad one. Right, but they kind of have that reputation, which is interesting because if we call one the cold sore one, then people go, oh, that's not quote-unquote gross or that's not quote-unquote dirty or bad or whatever negative adjective you want to use. But if it's something that you can only get through, you know, it's funny how we sort of categorize. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So you were diagnosed with both of them, and you had multiple partners at the time. What was that experience like talking with them about it? Well, I was... I was traumatized and I made it out like it was a big, you know, I was like, I have to tell you this terrible thing, you know, and I would approach it so differently now um, because I have not transmitted it to anyone ever that I know of. And I'm on suppressive drugs and the, I've probably had it, you know, going back to my 20s. So I'm, I'm not really worried about it anymore. And having a cancer diagnosis, even though I had cancer light, kind of puts that into perspective. Oh, you have a recurring skin rash, potentially. Right. And the fact that your your whole kind of view of STIs and, and herpes stigma and all of that has shifted probably also. Yes. That makes the conversations, I think, a lot more easy or comfortable, at least. Yeah. 
But it, at the time, it was like, okay, we just went through this whole discussion about HSV and how can we prevent transmission and how can we this and do we need to be worried about it? And, oh, guess what? Now I have cancer. It was like I was afraid that my partners were going to think of me as just like this giant walking germ bag problem Aww. thing. And they did not. <laughs> they all stuck with you. They did. Were they a good support system for you throughout? They were a very good support system um, in different ways. It was, I had, I had three partners who were, one was a very emotional kind of connection. Um, one was, was a more, a little more distant, but very intellectual and thoughtful and the other partner just made sure that he was going to send me some silly meme or joke or something every single day. <laughs> I just read an article about polyamorous people who shared that they had different needs fulfilled by different partners. That it was almost like compartmentalized that they would get like a really deep, this kind of connection with this partner. And, you know, an erotic fulfillment from one maybe and a more uh, intimate personal from one. Is, is that... Do, do they each provide a different is it or do you not even see it that way? Um, yes and no. I mean, I I don't want to think of partners as like you know the a la carte menu. I'll take one of these. Here's my salad. Here's my side dish. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean that that's kind of, that that would be dehumanizing. But in in reality, for people who don't understand polyamory, um, if you look at your friendships with your friends. You might have a friend that you like playing video games with, and you might have a friend that you like um, dishing on, you know, red carpet clothing things with. And you, you know, so you have different areas in your life that you really connect with people over. And polyamory can be whatever you want to make of it. It can be a romantic and sexual thing. Uh, it's not for some people. For some people, they need to have a remo romantic, emotional connection first before their sex. For other people, they need to have sex before they have an emotional connection. For some people, they're, they're asexual and they don't like sexual connection at all, but they still want a romantic connection. So, so there's no, you know, this is how it's done. It's how do you do it? Yeah, it's not a cookie cutter thing. It's very individual, like so many aspects of our sexuality. Yeah. We have a related question from a listener who I'd love to have your thoughts on as well. Dr. Megan Fleming of GreatLifeGreatSex.com is going to share some thoughts as well. We got this question from Jessica who wrote this. I'm dating a guy who is in a polyamorous relationship for eight years. He knew I prefer monogamy when we met, and I knew his relationship history. We didn't plan to fall in love, but here we are. He said he is happy to be monogamous for my sake, but I'm worried that by being with only me, he will feel held back. Will he be longing for more relationships and settling for only me? I'm not interested in an open relationship, but if he would prefer that, I'm wondering if we need to consider parting ways as excruciatingly painful as that idea seems, or at the very least, slowing things down. Thanks for any advice for the and for the space you create, Jessica. Jessica, thank you so much for this very thoughtful question. Here is what Dr. Megan had to say. 
Jessica, I guess a part of me always wants to celebrate, even when you both came into this relationship, essentially knowing who each other were and your histories, and it didn't, in a sense, expect to fall in love, that you have. And the reality is love comes, in, in a sense, all shapes and sizes and, and different arrangements. There's no one true gold standard. It's ultimately figuring out what works best for you both. So coming to your specific situation, you do you shared that your um, partner had been polyamorous for the last eight years, and that coming to this relationship, he was very clear that you were monogamous and that's what you want your, your future. And I guess part of me is really just touched by how each of you wants to give what is going to be in the best interest of the other, right? That he's like, I'm all in if you want to be monogamous. And you're kind of like, you know what? If this isn't going to be an arrangement that works for you, you want to honor and give him what he needs as well. So, you know, I think when it comes down to it, I'm not yet clear where, um, how long you guys have been in a relationship. You know, is this still the romantic phase? Or as I often say, you know, essentially has the rubber met the road, meaning you recognize that relationship is work. And as I often and always say, right, that work isn't a dirty word any more than sex is. And so the reality is all relationships take that consciousness, that effort. And so it seems like you both are at a sort of a pivotal point to continue the conversation. And as I say, it's not one definitive one. It's a series of conversations. And in this context, it's like, you know, I don't know how much you've explored his history and what's meant for him to be polyamorous. You know, is he somebody who, from the moment he started dating, um, has just really never been into dating one person or when he's tried it, he's found that he's ended up cheating and sort of felt bad, but kind of in his bones, never really felt monogamous. I don't know if he's that version and, or, you know, many people come into, uh, polyamory later in life and, for many different reasons, you know, I think it's important to recognize that everything, sexuality, and how we identify in a relationship is a spectrum, right? It's not binary, it's not black and white. And so, you know, I don't even know, despite the length of his history, eight years, what the polyamories looked like, in you know, particularly, whether that was hierarchical, meaning there was one predominant relationship, a primary relationship, and that there was others or non hierarchical. So, you know, I think that the reality is even in polyamorous relationships, it's work. And so we don't yet know what that meant for him. And most importantly, coming back to you both, what is it you want to have happen? And I think it's really being crystal clear about what you would like your future to look like. And from that perspective, um, if you want to be monogamous, have you even entertained the fact that you'd be monogamous and in any way open receptive to the fact that he might be polyamorous? And the opposite is, of course, that you know, he's choosing because he knows monogamy is what works for you. In this context, the reality is we know what we know and we don't know what we don't know. But what I often say is roll the camera forward and really try to put put yourselves in each other's shoes and anticipate what may be um, some challenges or, um, you know, areas where you think that it might be difficult or you might have a hard time expressing what you want or need. I mean, at the end of the day, any relationship is possible. It's because in my mind, love is about a commitment and it's a choice and it's a decision. And the reality is, is that anybody can absolutely be happy in a monogamous relationship. It's just what you both define and what works best for you both. So as always, would love to hear how it goes. Thank you so much, Dr. Megan. I love what you said about both of them being very thoughtful, like caring about the other person's needs. And and I also wondered when I first heard this question from Jessica, it's interesting. I think 
there's also fear of heartbreak or loss or of things going in a negative direction, right? Which I think we always are at risk for when we engage in any relationship. In, yeah, exactly. Um, I So much of what Dr. Megan said resonated me, with me and was something that I was going to say, but I have more things to say. Okay. So one, she's absolutely right. There is such a thing as a monopoly relationship where one partner is monogamous and one partner is polyamorous. Um, I, there's a, a thing that I would invite Jessica and other listeners to consider, and that is that we are steeped in a culture that teaches some really toxic behaviors and toxic expectations of relationships. Okay, like I love me some John Cusack and Peter Gabriel, but it is not okay to go stalk someone who's told you that they don't want to see you anymore playing a boombox of their favorite songs. <laughs> that is not yeah. that is not healthy. It's true. And so I think in our in our culture, unfortunately, a lot of people don't ever sit down and unpack the attitudes that they have grown up listening listening to and watching on TV and reading in books. So they go to the same church that their parents go to, and they vote the same way that their parents do, and they have relationships the same way their parents do. And I think that we can have a healthier set of relationships and expectations if we sit down and go, okay, what is it that I really believe about relationships as opposed to what I have been told that I am supposed to believe Yes, about yes. relationships? And so to do that work and to look at it, like I assumed when I started dating again that I would have a boyfriend. And the first couple of people I was started online dating and they approached me and they were like, well, this is polyamory and this is what it means to me. And I was like, you know, I think that could actually work for me. And I think that a lot of people are polyamorous in a way and don't realize it. I think that we all have former boyfriends or girlfriends or, or people that we still have a warm place in our heart for. Maybe we're not physically involved with them anymore, but we still have love for them in our hearts, even though we love somebody else. It's not like there's a scissors and cuts it off. Okay, you have the new person and now you have no feelings for anyone else ever in your life again. You never have attraction for anyone else in your life again. That is not how it works. It's so true. And I love what you're saying. It reminds me so much of the, all these presumptions that we have around sex, too. And just what desire is supposed to be, what relationships are supposed to be, all the, you know, so many of us grew up, as you said, with all these ideas, and we never pause to really think and just ask ourselves, am I curious about this? You know, what what might life be like if I tried this? And so maybe approaching the situation with a sense of curiosity and and, you know, just kind of trusting the feelings that they have now and and learning more about each other. I loved what she said about, you know, what what is his history and all of that and asking yourself those same questions, you know, have I why as you said, why have I always been in this kind of relationship? Is that is that what I want? Um yeah, I think they can they can change their minds at any point. She might end up deciding that she wants to try polyamory. He might decide that he prefers mon I mean, who knows? Like yeah. You just don't know. We it, never know. It, it can be anything. And <laughs> yeah. I think um, one of the big misconceptions about polyamory is about jealousy. It's about, well, people who do polyamory have to be able to not be jealous. And that is no. People who people who decide to do polyamory have to make a choice that they will work on their jealousy. And I have to tell you, um, you can have 
horrible jealousy in a monogamous relationship. My ex that I was in a toxic relationship for would get jealous um, and accuse me of cheating on him when I was five minutes late home from work. He would come into the bathroom if I decided to to go take a take a nice soak with a with a book in the bathtub. He would get jealous of my book and he would come and rip the book out of my hands. Oh my goodness! Okay, so yeah. so just because you're monogamous, right, doesn't mean that jealousy isn't going to be present. And you may even be less likely to have ever worked on it. You know, just because it is yeah. a theme that comes up with polyamory, it almost it forces you to have work on your openness and your acceptance and your communication that friends of mine who are polyamorous, they all, they communicate so much about so many things with all their partners. Like I have one friend who has like her planner is incredible. Like <laughs> I'm like, I could never even like, it's so beyond what I'm capable of like doing just in a schedule, but that's her personality, what she loves right. and everyone's different, but it's great. She's got different partners color coded and like you know and it's and it works great for her so that's such a good point I love that you mentioned that um I'd love to shift gears just a little bit because as I mentioned I love interviewing writers and your quote in Girl Boner Journal Mm -hmm. is is beautiful would you mind if I read it just a little so you are in exercise 16 which is called oral sex sexiness and I'd put out a query that you replied to, and I knew right away I wanted to to quote you. And you shared this. I have had sensations so intense when receiving. I've experienced syn- synesthesia, uh, which involves almost hallucinogenic visions of different textured images flipping like a slideshow through my mind. A white picket fence against a blue sky, butter dripping off corn on the cob, a sand dune, a small furry critter burrowing in the snow. It's poetry. Tell us a little bit about that. I, I don't think many people are aware of this kind of, unless they've experienced it, but the hallucinogenic <clears throat> potential. Well, okay, so synesthesia is a condition that actually some people have all the time, and it's where one sense bleeds into another. So you hear colors or you smell sound or, you know, in my case, I was experiencing some really intense sensations when a really amazing guy was going down on me. And all of a sudden, I started seeing this slideshow in my mind. I started seeing these visions in my mind. And I was like, wow, this is really interesting. (laughs) And uh, when we were done, I was talking to him about it. And he goes, oh, yeah, synesthesia. And I'm like, oh, that is like the only thing that gives me more of a girl boner is when the guy actually knows what I'm talking about and has the vocabulary for it. Oh, that is so exciting. Yeah. But but, um, so... It, what I realized is that my brain was experiencing sensation in such an intense way that it was trying to come up with comparative textural mm. sensations. All the images in my mind had to do with some kind of texture, but it was coming up in my mind in a visual way. That's really fascinating. And have you experienced it since? I actually have. With and not oral sex or with oral sex and occasionally with with other kinds of of uh, sexy play. Something erotic though. It like taps Usually, into your yeah. almost like the you're you're feeling so much that you need more to represent it. Yeah. That yeah. it kind of went into overload. That's it, incredible. It's, it's been it's it's really cool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> A fair number of people 
feel self-conscious about receiving oral sex, what advice would you give someone who feels that way? Well, I think, okay, so so here's here's a hard and fast fact, is not all men or women like to perform oral sex. And if you're with a partner who doesn't enjoy giving, you know, personally, I would rather have a V8. <laughs> Like that commercial, you know, it's like, eh, no, you know, let's do something that we both enjoy. Don't go through the motions yeah. and be checking your watch to see if you've done it long enough. Can I trade this for a beverage, please? <laughs> yeah. So, so, so that's part of it. You want to have a partner who really actually does enjoy it. So I do have partners who really enjoy it. And I have partners who are kind of mad about it. And we don't have, I don't receive cunnilingus from them. Because there's. A ton of other ways to have fun and pleasure that yeah. you both enjoy. That's great. So um, of the men who enjoy it, um, they like the look. They like the smell. They like the taste. They like, you know, all the things about it. They're not self-conscious about it. And that makes it incredible. And and I think that, you know, I also enjoy performing and my my partners have told me it's my enjoyment that makes it good for them. Again, the feeling that I'm not just like checking my watch and seeing how many minutes I can do the thing. And Right. Getting it over with is not a good place to be when you're, yeah, yeah, enjoying it. And I think that is evident. I mean, there are ways to express it. You could also express it and not be really meaning it. And I think, you know, acting like you enjoy giving it is not the same thing. Like finding ways to enjoy it or, like you said, do something else. Yeah. I I prefer in my relationships to really connect emotionally with a partner. And that comes through sexually. Um, other people have a different approach and that works for them. But, but I think that, you know, Every, every person that has labia and a clitoris and a vagina, whether um, you were born with it or whether you got some help from a surgeon later on, whatever kind of genitals you have, you have good genitals. You should not ever feel ashamed of the way your genitals look. And as long as you do, you know, basic hygiene, you know, your genital and, and you don't have an infection, which you you know, you take care of that thing. There's nothing wrong with the way your genitals look, smell, taste. Thank you for that. Yeah. There's no standard. There's no thing you need to measure up to. It's uh, There is a whole industry that will try to tell you otherwise. So it's so important to hear that message. Thank you for sharing that. Would you tell us just a little bit about SPLA, Sex Positivity, um, in Los Angeles, this group that you're a big part of, and you also mentor people? I do. So, um, Sex Positive World and the Sex Positive Los Angeles chapter, um, it's a volunteer organization um, to promote sex positivity. And so what does that mean? It means education. It means that we have panels on consent and we have panels on sexual health and we have cuddle parties and we have events where you can uh, test out different things. Like, let's say you're, you're curious as to what it would feel like to have hot wax dripped on you. You could check that out or to be tied up or to um, give or receive a flogging. Um, there's things that I never imagined that I would be interested in that I am and other things that surprised me that did not interest me. Is this how you found that you were into kink was through these workshops? It, it is. It yeah. is through exploring that and through one of my partners. 
who okay. who was um was a bit kinkier and started spanking me and I originally thought that spanking would be this horrible weird punishment kind of thing and an erotic spanking is very different an erotic spanking is is specifically designed and artistic to put blows in a certain place to bring blood to the surface and followed by caresses and stuff and it's like wow it's freaking amazing <laughs> <laughs> is that besides spanking what else have you discovered that you completely had a different idea about or didn't realize you'd enjoy till you engaged um, well, I already mentioned um, bondage, the rope bondage, um, flogging. I uh, there are there are so many ways to to be sexy and sensual. There's some that I haven't tried yet. There's there's a thing called furries where some people like to dress up, and so. I dated a guy once and I was trying to figure out where he was going with this. So he sent me three pictures of himself, one tied up, another tied up, and another wearing a gorilla mask. <laughs> and I was like, does he saying that he wants to dress in a gorilla suit? And... Was there any sort of text with this? Was it like a he, multiple choice He was menu? sending me, he's like, I'll send you some pictures from my FetLife account. Which oh, okay. FetLife is so I assumed that. Okay, so like I haven't I haven't personally explored furries, except in my mind. And then I was investigating in my mind whether I was interested in in having sexy times with somebody wearing a gorilla mask or a gorilla suit. And that's still kind of on the to be determined. <laughs> yeah, and from... it's it's great to have those like your yes knows your maybes. Yeah, and yeah. so and and that's one of the things that we teach. So we teach. That, you know, everybody pretty much has either a bucket list or favorites list. These are things that I know that I love or that um, I, you know, tried and true favorites or that are that I want to do before I die. And then you've got a list of things that no, never, not under any circumstances. You know, I don't want to be, you know, buried in an anthill or, you know, whatever. And then you have a list of things in the middle, which might be things that... Maybe I would be interested in trying this and at the right time with the right person. Is buried in an anthill one of them for real? Not that I know of, okay. but I'm sure there's somebody. Oh, out probably. There. I was just curious if that was like a thing I wasn't aware of. There probably no. is. I mean, anything there, someone enjoys. There, there is people. a thing. Um, so there's like um, compression things. So you can be in like a, a kind of a plastic mattress where all the air is sucked out so there's a lot of pressure all over all the spots of your body with I guess like a breathing tube um <laughs> so you're kind of, yeah you're kind of like free, you know you're like you're, you're you're like those uh sweaters that they suck all the air out of and, <laughs> <laughs> and then and then ship them and then, yeah but that's you in the mattress that's a thing um there's there's pressure there's um there's needle play um you know there's there's Things then a lot of those now anything in SPLA none of the things that we do involve um, blood, urine, or feces. Don't judge people that are into it. That's just we don't do that in our. Yeah, it would be hard to kind of keep everything. Like you'd have to be testing everyone's substances and the cleanup and the hygiene and all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. But so one of the things that we do is we teach people to have a safer sex talk. And so we have several points where you talk about um, 
first off, your STI testing. When was the last time you were tested? What were you tested for? What were the results? Um, what are your barrier protocols? Uh, for instance, personally, I use condoms to receive penetrative intercourse. I use gloves if I'm putting my fingers inside somebody's anus. Um, I don't require condoms for performing oral sex. Other people do. Um, so you discuss your, your barriers. You discuss um, your relationships and if anyone has expectations. Now, that's one of the things about polyamory is some people have a relationship where they have to play like Captain May I. They have to, before they have sex with somebody else, they have to call their partner and make sure it's okay. Um, some people are okay with that and other people are like, check, please. <laughs> Yeah. So do you have, you teach this, is it a, a script that you provide? Do people have like worksheets? How, what's the best <clears> way? I'm, there's no one best way, but when you're recommending this to people, do you say, sit down together and go through this list? We do. We do and we actually have workshops where we practice it. Um, you can find it online. There's a sex educator part of our Portland chapter called Evelyn Dacker. D-A-C-K-E-R. She has a TED Talk, and she has, if you look for her STARS, STARS being an acronym for sexually transmitted, turn on, avoids, relationships. Um, and so you might, you know, again, when you're, when you're talking about somebody, um, to somebody about this, you want to you wanna talk about all these things. Now, ongoing relationships. This is one of the things that we talk about in our Boundaries workshops, too, that I wanted to bring up. So people in ongoing relationships, you kind of have blanket permission to do things, okay? You don't have to ask your boyfriend of three years, may I kiss you? You don't have to ask. You know that they like to have their ass wrap while you're cooking, while they're cooking, or that they don't. You, you kind of have a set of behaviors that you've worked out together. However, sometimes that changes, and so, like, let's say you've given a partner permission to wake you up by going down on you in the middle of the night. And this has worked fine for the last 10 years. And now it doesn't. Right. Now when they do this, okay, it freaks you out and your heart's pounding and you can't get back to sleep. So sometimes you need to have a conversation and say, hey, you know, these things that we've been doing together, I don't know what's going on with me, but right now this isn't working for me. I need to make an adjustment. Which could feel really vulnerable because, you know, you've been doing this and you don't want to hurt the partner's feelings. And I love that you're encouraging these conversations because I think that's how we grow. And also our partners, partner partners want to know what does work and what doesn't. Nobody, nobody wants to freak their partner out unless they're an asshole, in which case you shouldn't be with them. But, right. you know, yeah. no, it, you want to please your partner. You want to make them happy. You don't you don't want to make them unhappy. So, you know. Part of a relationship, an ongoing relationship, is you have to create a space where your partner can come to you with these issues. And part of it is that you have to be brave and you have to be willing to be vulnerable and say, you know, this thing that we've been doing forever, right now it's not working for me. I need to put it on pause. That's beautiful. What is, if you had to give one tip for someone who's very new to their sex positivity journey, maybe they are just beginning to question or explore, what advice would you give? Okay. Sex is not rare. 
<laughs> sex is not rare. There's there's like a feeling like you're bursting on a smorgasbord and you've been starving in the desert for for weeks and weeks and weeks and you want to try everything right now right away. Okay? You, honey, you don't have to do that. You can slow down. <laughs> I totally know what you're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> slow down. You can like, okay, yeah. well, you know, yeah, I would like to do this someday, but do I want to do this right now? Stop. Check in with yourself. You know, you don't have to. And I think this is part of what comes up with rape culture is people um, who rape other people are afraid, oh, I will never get a chance to have sex with this person again. And so maybe I'll push it a little further. No, stop. You know, we, we try to teach people to, it's much better to leave an encounter with somebody feeling like next time I'd like to go a little further with them. How do they feel? Then, man, I went further than I was comfortable with. And I don't feel good about that. Yeah. Then it builds not only trust and safety, but anticipation, which is really hot. Yes. Builds intimacy. That's that's wonderful advice. Thank you so much for that. The thing that I was suggesting as far as checking in with yourself and working out what you want to do, the New Girl Boner Journal is a really good resource for that because it gives you some ideas of things to explore for you to take in and work out how you feel about them. So you might not feel like, well, I don't even know where to start. It's a good place to start. Thank you. That means so much from you. If people want to learn more about you, your work, SPLA, your book, where can they find you? Okay, so I have a website. It's Beverly Deal, B-E-V-E-R-L-Y-D-I-E-H-L.com. I have a blog there. I have a newsletter. You can find my book on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Kobu, um, Smashwords, you know, all the electronic places and paperback as well, um, places that sell paperback. You can find me on most social media outlets at, um, at Writer Beverly. So that's Twitter, that's Facebook, that's Instagram, that's Goodreads. So I'm all over the place. Thank you so much for being here today and for the work you do. I'm, I'm super grateful. Thank you so much for having me. This is just so much fun. And if you're enjoying Girl Boner Radio, please subscribe if you haven't yet on whatever app you're listening, if you're listening on an app. If you're listening on a smartphone, you can also swipe and find some links, some of those that, that Beverly just mentioned. And have a beautiful Girl Boner Embracing Week. Girl Boner Radio is owned, operated, and executively produced by me, August McLaughlin, with technical producer and audio extraordinaire, Mackenzie Mazel, as part of the Period Podcast Network, an affiliate of Starburns Industries. Learn more about the Girl Boner podcast, brand, movement, and book series at girlboner.org, and more about Period at periodnetwork.com.